All right, if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Matt, or Amos chapter 6. And if you don't have your Bible, it'll be behind me. We're going to go through verses 1 through 7. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes, pass over to Kauna. And see, and from there go to Hamath the great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on the beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches. And eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. Who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music. Who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils. But are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. May God bless the reading of his word. We're continuing on through Amos, um, and I think we're doing a really good job with it, actually. We're already in chapter 6. But something that Amos continues to bring forward is injustice. He keeps on bringing forward um, those in high positions who take advantage of, of those in low positions. And maybe something that we can consider from all of that is that when the high are corrupt, it kind of permeates all the way down to society. And we see that in our own society. We see that in other societies that we can encounter. Um, And so when we consider Amos, when we consider the prophecies against these ancient kingdoms, you almost see a sense of humanity hasn't changed in 4,000 years. Um, It continues to be corrupt. We continue to see this corruption. And so it's with that we go to verse 1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Now we're going to take a break for a second. Look at a map because we like our maps. And I hope that everyone has this map memorized by the end of this. Uh, but okay, we got Israel, and right now he brings up um, Samaria. That's the capital of Israel. He also brings up Jerusalem, Zion. That's where Jerusalem is. He also brings up down here um, Gath. Gath is right there. Philistia, if you notice, it's actually inside Judah at the time. Um, and you've also got the others. All that he's talking about are in this area up in here. Um, and so it's just something to consider. Okay, that's the area we're looking at. Now let's continue. So at this point, Namus, who receive another woe passage, we notice that there are two recipients of this woe, and that is to those who are at ease in Zion, again Jerusalem, and those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, which again is the capital of Israel. We notice then that this woe has some direction against both Israel and Judah, since Samaria, as I said, is the capital of Israel and Zion represents Jerusalem. We see Amos focuses on those who are at ease and feel secure in these cities. Because they are the capital cities, they receive more wealth than any or many of the other cities within the nations. They are where the elite 
are gathered, so to speak. It's similar to our major cities in the United States when we think of New York, Washington, D.C. On the West Coast, we think of Los Angeles. Thus, when Amos discusses how notable men of the first of the nations and to the house of Israel comes, it implies the power behind the cities that draws all of these powerful people to them. Now verse 2, pass over to Kauna and see, and from there go to Hamath the great, and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than your territory? Though those in Jerusalem and Samaria may have felt secure in their wealth and their elite status, the truth is they were not any better than the nations around them. In fact, Kauna and Hamath were both Aramean city-states that were subjects of Israel. Though they were subjected to Israel, they were still fairly large city-states. The same could be said of Gath. Gath, as we may remember, was one of the five major cities of the Philistines. Yet during the time of Amos, Judah had taken control of the city. Thus, like Kauna and Hamath, it was a city which had power but had been subjugated by another nation. Thus, Amos asks two rhetorical questions. Is Samaria and Jerusalem, are they better than these kingdoms? Is their territory greater? And the answer is no. The elites in the capital cities had presumed that they were better because of all their wealth and because of their status. But as it is, they were not better than these other kingdoms and cities who were fairly powerful in their own right. In the end, and this is what Amos is getting at, is that God caused these cities to be subjects of both Israel and Judah. Hence, it wasn't Israel and Judah's power. It was God himself who had this happen. Verse 3. O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. There are two ways to understand this verse. The first is in regards to the way the ESV, um, which I read, translates it, which focuses on those who would ignore the day of disaster, likely reflecting on the judgment to come, and who bring near the seat of violence, that is, by their own failure to recognize the impending judgment, they continue on in their sin without any sorrow. Now, another understanding, however, focuses on divination, that those who could divine a day of disaster or a week of violence, and that's another way of interpreting um, the word there. And so those who would then use the occult, which is an unlawful practice, to see the upcoming day or week, to have possible dire outcomes, and because of this, it allowed them to continue on in their laziness, relying on the work of others instead of going to work themselves. Either of these interpretations work within context, as we have seen. This woe is against the elites who have made their living on the backs of the poor. Likewise, it works because those who are the elites refuse repentance for their continued transgressions against the law. So verse 4. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lamb from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. The woe continues by reflecting on those who are rich. We can see how this would tie well with their interpretation of the previous verse. Uh, They would be too lazy to worry about the day of judgment to come because they were lying on their beds. Likewise, if they divined and went according to their divinations, that would also lead them to said laziness. Regardless, they lie on their beds of ivory, stretch themselves out on their couches. And if this is a classic example of wealthy excess, I don't know what else would be. 
Yet that excess does not end with their material belongings and their lazy lifestyles. It continues with the reality that they ate lambs of the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. That is, they were able to procure their choice meat. They were able to eat lamb and veal, while those who were less fortunate ate tough meat or did not eat any meat at all. As some commentators note that the eating of meat was seldom done by many except during the festivals, which happened about three times a year. So that leads us to verse 5. Who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music. Um, Not only do they lounge around eating their choice meats, but they also spend their time singing songs. It is not that they are inventing new musical instruments. Instead, they are inventing new songs. The upper class had such time on their hands to work on their artistry, becoming like David. David... Um, we may have, may have been a member of a leading family. We know that that's probably the case in Judah. And therefore able to practice his musical talents. But we certainly would not call David lazy, if anything. <laughs> Thus, it may very well be that the prophet is mocking their views on themselves. They believe they were acting like royalty by their lifestyle. Even following after David, who wrote music and songs. Hey, we do it too. But they are far from being as King David. For though David played and practiced music, he also sought God. Verse 6, Who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Amos continues to draw us a picture of the elites in these cities. They drink wine from bowls. Such a wine drinking is not from goblets or cups, but they were drinking it right out of the storage basins. Now, they might not be literally doing this, but it is very well establishes just how much they were drinking, reminding us of their debauched lifestyle. They also anoint themselves in finest oils. Um, The anointing of oneself was generally for hygienical purposes, as oils were used to kill lice. However, these individuals weren't using it merely for hygienic reasons, instead purposefully buying the most expensive kind of oils, likely for perfume. Thus, they were anointing themselves with these oils and in doing so, showing their extravagance and excess and possibly, again, tying themselves over to this um, elite status of being like kings and queens. They focus so greatly on these material things, don't they? With their material possessions, their food, their drink, their merrymaking, but they care not in the least over the ruin of Joseph. We notice Amos comes specifically back to the northern kingdom as Joseph reflects Israel. Despite the poor state of the nation of Israel, the elites care only for themselves. Therefore, verse 7, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. Verse 7 concludes this woe, this lament, with a judgment. And Amos, he goes back to the beginning by reflecting a bit on irony. Those who are considered first in the nation, the elites, will be the first to go into exile. Those who were living in their revelry, who lived in their debauchery, who acted like kings, will find that they will not be able to last. God will not allow those who have lived in such a way to continue while the nation falls into corruption. Thus, those who stretch themselves out through their material wealth will pass away. And many will die, as well as be led into exile. So the main point of this passage, 
It's to reflect on those who would be considered elite among Judah and especially Israel. They believe that they are safe, perhaps even believing that they are blessed by God. And though that may be the case, they use their blessings for their own selfish gain. Because of that, God will, in an ironic twist, cast out first those who are considered first in the society. Now this leads us to a few applications. And by a few, I mean one long one, and then the gospel. So, I warned Betsy last week, I felt like this sermon was going to be a bit shorter. Um, Take it what it is. Alright, materialism. There was one specific application to receive from this section of verses. And that is a warning about materialism. For sure, materials are not evil in and of themselves. We all have experienced moments when materials can be blessings. However, the way we understand such blessings, the way we use our material possessions, whether it be our finances or what we purchase with our finances, as well as how our overall lifestyles are in regards to our materials, may very well indicate that we might be lost and far from God. Jesus warns us in the New Testament when it comes to wealth. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. And that's Matthew 6.24. As such, what we see here is the evident lifestyle which occurs when one serves money before God. It leads to a decadent and corrupt lifestyle with no worry for the poor, No worry for morality, no worry for living rightly before God. This is what we see especially in the text. These individuals were lazy. They were spending their days reclining on couches, eating, drinking, and making music. It is interesting that these things are in themselves not bad things, but it is when such things cause one to live in a hedonistic lifestyle that they can very easily become evil. Simply put, There is nothing wrong with taking time to rest or having a nice meal. These things are blessings given to us by God. However, we can turn these blessings into curses when we desire the things and spend our time getting these things above seeking the glory of God. There are few places perhaps in the entire world where such a warning against materialism needs to be remembered than here in the United States. It reminds me of a story I once heard about some Russian Christians who were in the U.S. And this was a while back. But they were asked, is it harder being a Christian in America or in Russia? They responded, it was harder to be a Christian in America. The American Christians responded with, why is that? The Russians responded, in Russia there are no jacuzzis. Now, there are jacuzzis in Russia now. (laughs) And shopping malls. And the point of it was, however, that Even though at the time in Russia, Christians were facing persecution, it was easier to remain in the faith there compared to the materialism which is so easily afforded to us in the United States. American materialism is something which is a blessing. However, what we often forget is that it can very easily turn into those curses. We can forget just as easily as those in ancient Israel and Judah that the material items themselves are not what is most important but the God who has blessed us. In our nation, we have a failure to understand something rather serious, and that is to remain in humility. This was the same issue that those in Jerusalem and Samaria had, a lack of humility. They held the belief that they were first, 
They were chosen, that they were in the right. Yet the problem is they did not understand that any blessing they received came from God. So how do we, who are in a nation which cherishes the materialism in an almost fanatical way, remain in humility? Well, it is by reflecting on something. Let me ask you a question. What is the main difference between you, living in America, and those living in third world countries? Another question is, what is the difference between you who worked and made, let's say, the average of $15 an hour versus the person working the same job or a similar job in another country making a few dollars an hour, if that? Do you know what the difference is? God. He put you in the place where you are at and placed them in their place as well. You did not get here because you are deserving. Before you were born, were you so great that God decided that you would be born into the family and into the nation which you were born into? I would say no. Instead, God has shown you a difference in grace, mercy, and favor than those who are in other places in the world. So do you know what you cannot do? Boast. You have no right to say, well, I work this hard at my job, therefore I deserve these material possessions. I deserve to buy this $75,000 car. I can spend my money as I want. Well, all right, I'll give you that. You certainly can spend your money as you want. But don't forget, the only reason why you had that job was because of divine favor. Are we so foolish to believe that somehow our work ethic is greater than the person working just as hard for a fraction of the pay? Humility will remind us that everything we have is by God's favor. Does this mean that we should sell off all of our possessions and give everything we have to the poor? I would say no, not necessarily. If God is calling you to do that, by all means. But the truth is, the majority of us simply need to remember that we are blessed, and that blessing is good, and we should not seek to take advantage of that blessing by living lifestyles which focus on excess. Yet it is not only the materials themselves that can cause us to fall into gross idolatry. As it is, there is already a growing deception among American Christianity, which is causing many to fall into a false gospel. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the prosperity gospel, which we see so often proclaimed on the television and on the radio. In fact, one of the major proponents of the prosperity gospel said the prayer at Donald Trump's inauguration. Did you know that? The health and wealth gospel which permeates our society. The preachers who proclaim that if you send them money, God will bless them. If you pray this way, God will bless you. If you believe God will give you items, then he will. As though simply believing in God um, will cause one to receive what it is that they want. Shall we reflect on Jesus Christ himself? Did he not have greater faith than all? And yet when he asked for there to be another way... He did not conclude, I have faith, therefore you must give me another way out, Father. Instead, he concluded with, not my will, but yours be done. Yet many fall sway to these teachings despite the obvious fallacies that they present. Simply put, these teachers who keep on preaching these things are false teachers, and we should be wary of any who would proclaim any kind of message such as this. It is not Christianity which they are presenting to us in the world. It is an American materialistic ideology wrapped up with some religious language. Because the religious language is there, 
Because they say God, or because they misquote a scripture reference, many fall prey and believe that what these people proclaim is truth. That God only wants you to be healthy and wealthy. Balderdash. Here's an old word. God certainly wants what is best for you, but sometimes what is best for us isn't health, nor is it wealth. Sometimes what is best for us is sickness and lack of wealth. Why? Because it may very well lead us closer to our God. It will cause us to rely on Him for our provision, because it will remind us to say to ourselves and to those around us who see us in our humble state, Jesus is all I need. This should also lead us to another place which Amos has been calling us to throughout these prophetic statements, and that's justice. The majority of these individuals in today's text who own these possessions have garnered them on the backs of the poor. The poor who have no hope in the society because the rich continue to accumulate their wealth. But this makes us think of something. If the whole of society accepts a certain way of life, or if they accept a particular form of justice, does that mean that we should accept it as well? In ancient Israel, the wealthy were taking advantage of the system for their own benefit. As such, the society itself accepted this kind of unrighteous ends through unrighteous means. Consider our own society. Is it possible that there are things in our society which we let slip by because the rest of society is doing it? We know it is happening theologically when it comes to same-sex marriage, as well as other liberal things. But consider what was said above about the prosperity gospel. Is that not the same thing? The rest of society seeks prosperity. So why not spread a thin veneer of Christianity on seeking prosperity? Our churches will grow. Our congregations will become prosperous. This sounds more like a store rather than the church. And yet many congregations fall prey to such methods and means because they get the results. They expected, they believe they are blessed. Well, when you use methods and means that the world uses to get prosperous and cause growth, what do you expect to happen other than the results of such methods and means? Now use a harder method. And a harder mean, such as faithful proclamation of the gospel and the scriptures, and perhaps you won't get prosperity and growth of the world, but you will certainly find a deeper and fuller prosperity and growth in Jesus Christ. Thus it is unbecoming of the church to act like the society around them to get what the results the society around them desires. In other words, we cannot be like those who came before us and believe that because the general society deems it appropriate to act or to do in such ways that we should too. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't desire growth. Instead, it means we should be desiring growth which comes from God above all because such growth is everlasting. As such, we continue to learn from Amos the reality that we are responsible We are responsible with the gifts God has given us. And we are responsible to be holy in this world. To be different than the world. Rather than seek the same gains that the world seeks. We can't let the American dream, so to speak, be our goal. Instead, the only dream we should be seeking is faithfulness to God. And the Lord of all who has saved us from our sins. Material items, they can be a gift. 
But let's not waste that gift. Just as all good things are a gift from God, let's not make the gift the goal, but the giver himself. These blessings may satisfy us, but it is the one who gives. It is in him we find our eternal satisfaction, and through him we find our greatest wealth. So take warning of this woe and this lament, for we may find in Amos that he is speaking to us today of the very same problems. We can see the gospel when it comes to these things. The gospel reminds us that the gifts we are given are precisely that, that they're gifts. And because of that, they have a giver. The world believes that the gifts are the ends. But as believers in Christ, we know that the gifts are really the means to an end, and that is the giver himself. So we can rejoice in the gifts without seeking to pursue them with our lives. It is the gospel which gives us the greatest gift, which is salvation through Christ. And it allows us to acknowledge the great giver of all good things, which is God himself. This gospel begins with our origins. God existed without a beginning because he is infinite. The universe, however, is not infinite. It has a beginning. He created all things. Actually, all things that have a beginning have a cause. God is the cause of the universe. He created all things according to the power of his word. Last of all, he created humanity to be made in his image. Because God is a God of love, reason, knows, can be known, has personhood, shows hesed, we can as well. And it is here we find worth, sanctity, and dignity to all human life. And that last sentence we really need to remember on a day like today. Because it's today that Roe v. Wade was passed. And so we need to remember that our understanding of personhood does not start anywhere but in humanity itself. Yet like God, we are also able to choose. We could choose to obey God into life or disobey into sin and death. We chose the latter and have continued to make that choice ever since. It is because of this we have broken relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world. This is the reason why we accrue a greater moral guilt before our God every day. And because of this, we deserve judgment for our sins. God did not remain silent, however. Instead, he spoke his word and spread his light, which is his son, Jesus Christ. He lived, died, and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. It is because of his life, his death, and his resurrection that we are able to be redeemed from our sins. He died as a propitiation on our behalf. His blood expiates our sins. Where once we were guilty before the judge, we can now attain righteousness before God. It is the victory of Christ over death that becomes our victory as well. All that is required of us is obedience in two things. The first is repentance from sin. We are to turn away from our sins and turn toward God. We are to live a lifestyle for the glory of God. We are to live according to the scriptures in light of the Son revealed by the scriptures in step with the Holy Spirit who is in us in love. And the second we are to do and be obedient is, is faith in Christ. We must recognize our utter dependence upon the Son of God for our salvation. It is not what we do. It is what Christ has done which saves us from our sins. It is His righteousness given to us. It is by Him we are justified before God. 
We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. For those who live in disobedience, there is only judgment. None can stand before God with their own deeds in hand, for their own deeds are stained with sin. And even their best deeds are as filthy rags before God. Therefore, they will receive judgment for their sins because of their disobedience to the holy and righteous God of all. For those who obey, however, there is no longer condemnation but peace. They are called children of God. They can glorify God in their lives by how they live. They become inheritors of an eternal kingdom. Well, they will experience the love of God for forevermore. In all of these things, we give praise to the God of all. To the God who reminds us of the gift of salvation given to us by his infinite grace. Be encouraged to accept the gifts, but at the same time be cautious to not let them become the focus. Do not let them dictate your lifestyle. Be cautious of false teachings which would have you believe that these material blessings should be our focus. Instead, cling to the teachings which reminds us that Jesus is all I need. For he is all we could ever need in this life or in the next, this great gift of salvation. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the knowledge that comes from the scriptures. We thank you for the warnings that you give us. Even though these warnings were proclaimed to these ancient nations, we know that they still have ramifications to us today. Because despite 4,000 years, we continue to act the same as we've always done. And so, Lord, we know and we trust your word to guide us. Because we know that your word leads us to Jesus Christ. That it is through him we understand justice, we understand mercy, and we understand love. So Lord, continue to lead us in love. And continue to lead us in the gift that you have given us through your son, Jesus Christ, this salvation. We thank you. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our